Oregon tries something new. The first thing this measure does is it stops harming people. The second thing it does is it provides an alternative. Voters in Oregon have approved a ballot measure that decriminalizes the possession of small amounts of illicit drugs and provides for a new statewide system of assessment and treatment. First and foremost, it will decriminalize a health condition and change it to a health approach and treat it as the physical disease that it is. On today's program, Oregon's Measure 110 and the effort to shift the focus from law enforcement to health care when we talk about substance use. We'll talk to people involved in drug treatment, addiction, and harm reduction in Oregon as together they chart a new way forward. On the Hear Me Now podcast from the Providence Institute for Human Caring, Hello, I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for spending time with us today. This country says it's been fighting a war on drugs for 50 years. America's public enemy number one is drug abuse. We've been losing that war. When it comes to drugs and alcohol, just say no. Police, open up, we got a war in Baltimore Mayor Kurt Schmoke, a former federal prosecutor, began to openly challenge the lock em up approach. It's not solving the problem. It's not getting to the answer. And we're wasting millions of resources and millions of lives. He even suggested decriminalization. You weren't going to be able to prosecute your way out of addiction. If we went after it as a health problem, I think in the long run, we'd get both a reduction in crime and a, and a reduction in addiction rates. It is a huge sledgehammer to the cornerstone of the war on drugs. That's Cassandra Frederick, who heads the Drug Policy Alliance. Speaking with Oregon Public Broadcasting, after the New York-based advocacy group was successful in getting Measure 110 on the Oregon ballot earlier this month, 60% of Oregon voters approved the measure. Oregon has among the highest rates of substance use disorder in the nation and there aren't enough beds for everyone who wants treatment. And that untreated problematic substance use causes ripples through the society, causing sudden deaths, compounding racial injustice, increasing the burden of foster care, and magnifying the impact of other diseases like hepatitis and HIV. So in the environment that we find ourselves in in 2020, a double pandemic of coronavirus and opioids, with mounting death tolls wrought by both, Oregon voters approved a new approach to drug addiction. Basically, a parking ticket. Get caught with small amounts of illicit drugs, cocaine, heroin, oxycodone, methamphetamine, and you get ticketed, fined $100. And you can avoid the $100 fine altogether if you agree to participate in a new type of health assessment the law sets up. And if you want help with a substance use disorder, the hope is that that will become evident in that assessment and you'll be helped to find treatment. And you'll also be put in touch with people in recovery who know what it's like to battle addiction. There'll be housing assistance available and case management and harm reduction measures, like needle exchange programs. What there won't be is a jail cell or a criminal record. And this is all paid for by tax money from the legal sale of cannabis. It's important to note two things. The commercial manufacture and sale of drugs is still a crime in Oregon. So is the possession of large quantities of drugs. What's been decriminalized is simple personal possession. But that's still huge. Drug possession is the most arrested offense in the U.S. Each year, there are more than 1.6 million drug arrests in America. The vast majority, more than 85% of those arrests, for possession only. And from what I can tell, almost everybody involved in addiction treatment in Oregon 
agrees that decriminalization is a good idea. Where there's disagreement is in how to treat people who are interested in getting help. Not everyone sees the value of all types of treatment. This is the first time a state has decriminalized drug possession. It's a bold step. When the dust settles from the presidential election, when, God willing, life returns to a new kind of normal with a vaccine for COVID, the rest of the country will begin to notice what's going on in Oregon. They'll be charting a new path forward, a totally new way to treat drug addiction. Today, we'll talk with some of the people who will be doing that work. Dr. Andrew Seaman is an internist and addiction medicine specialist in Portland, where he's on the faculty of the Oregon Health and Science University. He cares for patients who are living with the daily threats from homelessness, poverty, and addiction. And he joins us now from Portland. Dr. Seaman, welcome. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. On November 3rd, you tweeted, We did it. Oregon becomes the first in the nation to decriminalize all drugs, stop incarcerating people for a public health problem, and begin the road to providing treatment for everyone who wants it. That seems like the tweet of a happy man. You must be eager to get to work on what's ahead for you and your colleagues. That's right. There is a lot of work yet to be done. The, the public has spoken, but uh, now we need to actually implement and make sure this actually happens. How will Measure 110 benefit the people that you see? The first thing it will do is it will stop harming them. Um, you know, when you are someone living with an addiction and you're trying to hold a job, you're trying to maintain relationships, stay in housing, all of the things that foster long-term recovery, when you're incarcerated, all of that is threatened. You might be picked up on a small possession charge, go to jail, be forced to uh, undergo withdrawal, especially if you're on uh, an opioid. And then you, you're re-traumatized again and again in the criminal justice system, and very often are released again with no connection to care, now with your opioid receptors wide open and at an extraordinarily increased risk of overdose. Not only that, you now have either a new criminal record or you have a compounded criminal record, yet again, decreasing your chances of employment and other factors that foster long-term recovery. So the first thing this measure does is it stops harming people. The second thing it does is it provides an alternative. So instead of going to jail, you will now receive a class five violation, which is akin to um, a parking ticket or, or similar, and you will be given the option of either paying a $100 fine or completing a, a health assessment with someone either with lived experience of addiction or expertise in treating addiction and be provided options for a safer way forward. And that option could be uh, if someone is not interested in not using uh, access to harm reduction services so that people are less likely to get skin and soft tissue infections, uh, transmit hepatitis C or HIV. Uh, it could be uh, access to uh, support for, for, their, for access to treatment for substance use. So access to uh, medications such as methadone or buprenorphine, which decrease death and increase likelihood of sustained recovery. Uh, access to potentially inpatient treatment programs. And so the, the sky is the limit. The, there's so much potential here. You know, one thing that uh, impressed me about the measure was the intersectionality that it, it represents. Um, the, the Oregon Criminal Justice Commission estimated that the measure could reduce the significant over-representation of black Oregonians arrested for low-level drug offenses by nearly 95%, which is just astounding. Absolutely. I, you know, in my work with this, I started out as an activist um, for better 
uh, drug policy and near the end of this work became far more interested in what this will do to reduce structural racism and systemic racism in, in this state. So what that report, which was very well done, doesn't even get to is what it will do to law enforcement officers approaching people mm-hmm. for presumed substance possession. One of the primary reasons that people of color are uh, pulled over for driving, uh, pulled over or, or pulled aside on the street is suspicion of drug possession. And so if you think about what happened and what's happening in the country around George Floyd and so many other people who have been harmed by interfaces with law enforcement, what this measure does is it actually removes the impetus to even pull people over and, and, and stop people because there really is no other suspicion uh, that is generally uh, reported uh, in, in a real way. It's almost always for substance use. Critics of the measure say it doesn't go far enough, that it's poorly written, that it funds assessment, but it doesn't fund any more treatment beds and defunds some existing treatment programs. What what do you say to that criticism? Well, nothing ever goes far enough. If we had $2 billion for treatment, that might be sufficient. Uh, what this measure does is it provides an additional probably $100 million per year initially, and that number is projected to go up from cannabis revenue, to provide increased access to treatment. Those dollars uh, will not be used uh, exclusively to start new treatment programs, etc., but what it can do Uh, In addition to starting new treatment programs in places where there's no access, such as certain areas of rural Oregon, is it's a a supplemental grant structure uh, to take projects that were close to being financially feasible through existing payer structures, such as uh, billing for Medicaid uh, services for substance use disorder. And it provides that additional cushion necessary to really build a program that thinks not just about medical fee-for-service interventions and expands that thinking into what are the really important things that support recovery, Mm -hmm. potentially access to housing structures, access to peer-supported recovery, of which I'm a big fan. Um, And so I I think that statement is, in some ways, just false. It does provide a lot of new funding for treatment. And in other ways just a little bit of a misrepresentation of what these dollars can actually be used to do. One of the other beauties of this funding structure is that things that were very challenging, if not impossible, to fund before, such as harm reduction services, can now be funded through these measures. Those those programs are so difficult to fund because, as of today, the federal government still has restrictions on funding for needle exchange programs through federal dollars. And that includes the biggest pot of money, which is the state opioid response uh, grants that come down from the federal government. And so these states have these big pots of money to be used for the opioid crisis or the overdose crisis, but they can't use them to fund needle and syringe exchange programs. So I think there's just a lot of potential here. I, I think that There have been slight shifts from uh, dollars that have already been used uh, from cannabis revenues for uh, substance use disorder prevention and treatment uh, into this now uh, new pot of money to be used for the implementation of Measure 110. But that does not mean that we're taking money away from substance use disorder prevention or treatment. It means we are redirecting it Uh, in a way that we think is more evidence-based and is more likely to promote long-term recovery. But realistically, if court-ordered referrals drop 90%, so if judges stop sending people to treatment, how are those existing programs going to survive if they only have 10% of the population coming to, uh, to make use of the service? And, and bringing dollars with them. 
I think those programs will have to adapt to um, this new model of care that does not rely on punishment and mandate uh, to push people through treatment. Uh, and I think they will adapt. Uh, the ones that are doing good work will adapt and they will, they will find new ways through the system. Uh, there, there's no way that this won't be a little challenging at first. Uh, this is a big fundamental shift in how we look at addiction. But the, when it comes down to it, you have to look at the data. And the data shows that court-mandated treatment doesn't work very well. In fact, if you answer the question on your addiction boards that court-mandated treatment does work, you get that question wrong. That's the state of the literature. There are large meta-analyses looking at multiple different studies of required treatment, and what, that meta, what those meta-analyses show is that there is at best neutral effect uh, and at worst harm done when you force people through treatment. And the reason for that is because when people have an addiction, this is a complex uh, neurobehavioral disorder and it's also related to a lot of social factors and other things. And when you enter long-term recovery, you have to choose it. I'm not saying there aren't success mm -hmm. stories. There are success stories. And in fact, you may hear from others later in this program who either are those success stories or know them and work with them closely. But the truth is that, that is, uh, these are personal experiences and we have to be really careful about externalizing the data for someone's personal experience to all people who have a substance use disorder. Because what those voices, those voices of people who made it through and perhaps benefited from court mandated treatment are the ones who survived. And the people who died or who were progressively harmed and stigmatized and pushed away from the, the centers of society don't have a voice to say the same thing. And so I think, I'm not saying there aren't success stories, there are, um, but for every success story, there are many more uh, who have been harmed by criminalization. It's a really good point to to keep our eyes on. You know, from, from my reading, the, the critics of this measure and its supporters seem to have common goals uh, at the heart of their work and appear to be disagreeing about the means to a common end. Is, is there room for cooperation going forward in Oregon um, among the community of people who are involved in addiction treatment? Absolutely. I, I think that that is undeniably true, that we all want the same thing. We want people to um, feel loved and feel cared for and uh, move towards something that's better for them in their lives. I think the people who are opposed to this uh, I would encourage them strongly to get involved in implementation. And if they don't think the money will be used in the right way, get involved and make sure that it is. What's clear is that the eyes of the nation are going to be on Oregon for the next couple of years. And, and all of us hope that your work is successful and can bring health and well-being to the men and women you, you help. Um, and all of us wish you good luck. Thank you. And I wish for luck for us also and also for patients in understanding the effects of this measure, because some of them will be immediate. Um, some of them will take a lot of time. And I think that we also have to interpret the outcomes uh, surrounding substance use and overdose in the context of a pandemic that has in Oregon already uh, been associated with an increase in overdose of about 80% um, from before April of uh, this year to now. So we have to be really careful in how we look at these results and really regimented and do good research on this and control for these factors, including the fact that fentanyl is now moving its way into our community in a big way. So I, I really appreciate your time. I hope we can have a lot of uh, thoughtful understanding uh, about how to move this forward and how to interpret it in the broad scheme. Andrew Seaman is Assistant Professor of Medicine at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland and board certified in both internal medicine and addiction medicine. He provides care for unhoused people at Central City Concerns Old Town Clinic in Portland. 
Dr. Seaman, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much, Sean. Still to come on the Hear Me Now podcast, a conversation with one of the chief petitioners of the ballot measure. We'll talk about the role of peer counseling and a conversation about the experience in Portugal where drugs were decriminalized about 20 years ago. That's coming up. But first, Mike Marshall is the co-founder and director of Oregon Recovers, a statewide coalition of people in recovery, along with their family and friends, united to transform health care for Oregonians suffering from the disease of addiction. And he joins us now from Portland. Mike Marshall, welcome. Thanks, Sean. Good to be here. You've been quoted as saying, we all support decriminalization, but your agency opposed Measure 110. Um, what were the problems with the measure in your view? So the second part of that quote is, but it's equally important how we do decriminalization. And this measure was written by the Drug Policy Alliance of New York and a couple of political consultants and didn't take into consideration the ongoing work that's going on here, the decriminalization legislation that was passed in 2017, nor unfortunately did it sort of consider the best practices that are coming out of places like Portugal that did decriminalization quite effectively. So namely what it does is number one, it doesn't draw a distinction between kids and adults. So we just decriminalized, you know, a pocket full of meth or heroin for a 16 year old in Oregon. I don't think anybody thinks that's a good idea. Um, Equally importantly, our current intervention system, sadly, is mostly rooted and resourced within the criminal justice system, primarily because the healthcare system has not been built up to, in order to really intervene or engage people in their substance use and or their addiction. Mm-hmm. And so what, the net effect of this is we're taking away the one, albeit flawed, pathway to recovery that people who are arrested have access to without first constructing a new pathway farther upstream within the healthcare system. So the net effect is going to be as few people are in treatment, which leads uh, gives me concern that we're going to see a, uh, an increase in overdose rates, particularly amongst kids. So let's talk about the real politic of Oregonian life these days, which is <laughs> both proponents and opponents of the measure do seem aligned in long-term goals but perhaps not in the means to the ends. Do you see specific ways to move forward cooperatively in a system that's created by the new measure? Uh, Yes. So first I want to draw a distinction, though. The Drug Policy Alliance in New York, which brought it here, paid for it, and then recruited local folks to support it, their mission is to end the war on drugs. And I personally support that 100%. That's not the same thing as ending Oregon's addiction crisis. We have the third highest addiction rate, and we rank last in access to treatment in pretty much every survey. And what I think this really sort of laid bare was that the ending the war on drugs is just a component of ending America's addiction crisis, which we don't really talk about. And here in Oregon, it manifests itself less in drug use, um, although that's significant, methamphetamines being the primary uh, drug of choice. But... Alcohol kills five times more people every day in Oregon and is a much larger contributor to the costs of untreated addiction that are run rampant in this state. So um, we need to uh, come up with reforms that focus on the concept of addiction and not on the substance being used or the way those subs- the use of that substance manifests itself. In, so what in- does that look like? So for the last three and a half years, Oregon Recovers and the stakeholders that we represent, which is about 150 treatment organizations, recovery organizations, parent organizations, have been working with the governor to get her to um, make this a political priority, working with local governments to get them to prioritize this for their their state legislators, and most importantly, to... um, we revived the Dormant Alcohol and Drug Policy Commission, and the legislature mandated that they develop a, a blueprint for a new system of care that looks at prevention, a new paradigm around intervention that's rooted upstream in the healthcare system and not in the criminal justice system, um, uh, provides treatment on demand, and then most importantly, starts to invest in post-treatment recovery support, whether that's simple access to meetings and, and uh, you know recovery meetings or housing or jobs or expungement clinics, 
all the thing that's necessary for people like myself who I'm in long-term recovery 12 years need, like I went to treatment for 28 days, but I've had to work every day on my recovery since then, mm-hmm. you know, fixing the financial uh, damage that I did, fixing the personal relationships, fixing my resume and making myself more hireable. All of those things have to be things that we support because if we keep someone in recovery um, for five years, their chance of relapse goes down to 15%, which is a tremendous return on investment for a chronic condition and is a huge savings to taxpayers. As my colleague says, it's surprisingly, he's not been arrested since he got into recovery. And he says that jokingly, but it's absolutely true. And in Oregon, we have uh, one of the worst one of the most overtaxed foster care systems and 60 to 70% of the kids that are in um, custody tonight are there because of a parent's untreated addiction issue. So we have really significant consequences of this. We need a comprehensive approach to it, a comprehensive system of care that is fully funded. Measure 110 is a set of band-aids really. What it does is it does the decriminalization part, which is important, deconstructing the concept of criminalizing addiction but it does so prior to building up the, the other forms of intervention engagement that need to exist within our healthcare system. So, but then it directs money away from county mental health programs and puts them into this grant program um, that a bunch of volunteers will administer and sets up assessment centers. Well, we don't need more assessment. I can go to my doctor and get an assessment, but I can't get his access to treatment. And, and what Measure 110 falls short on is this notion that simply giving someone a plan for how to get into recovery means they're going to get into recovery. What will the next step be for Oregon Recovers? Um, we're very interested in seeing the governor and the legislature and the Oregon Health Authority convene all the stakeholders involved in this so that we can come up with an implementation plan because there's a lot of inconsistencies. You know, ballot measures are not good ways to develop policy. Um, and so there's a lot of holes in this uh, ballot measure. So the first thing needs to happen is the yes side and the no side and the neutral side. There's an awful lot of stakeholders who didn't take a position, um, you know, uh, the addiction doctors being one of them, uh, most of the county and um, city local elected officials, all of whom are, are really impacted by this. Bring us all together. Let's look at it and figure out in the timeline mandated by the ballot measure how do we meet those goals while at the same time making sure that nobody's falling through the cracks, that we're um, uh, institutionalizing a system that is linked to concrete outcomes um, and that um, you know serves the larger issue of not just people that are arrested for drug use, but the larger issue of addressing the 400,000 Oregonians who are in active addiction. This is a national experiment. No other state has done this, and so we need to, as a state, we then have an obligation to uh, categorize and promote the uh, effects, whether positive or negative, that this has. Mike Marshall is the co-founder and director of Oregon Recovers, the statewide coalition of people in recovery in Oregon, along with their family and friends, united to transform health care. He spoke with us from Portland. Mike Marshall, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you, Sean. Dr. Bo Kilmer directs the RAND Drug Policy Research Center in Santa Monica, which conducts research to help decision makers address issues involving alcohol and other drugs. The center aims to bring an objective, data-driven perspective to policy discussions that are often fractious and fraught with emotion. Bo Kilmer joins me now from Tahoe City, California. Dr. Kilmer, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Sean. It's great to be on. So Oregon is embarking on something new for the U.S., uh, the first state to decriminalize drug possession and to make an attempt to shift the thinking from law enforcement to health care. Why do you think it's difficult for some of us in the society to shed the punishment paradigm when it comes to drugs? Well, there's just a tremendous amount of stigma uh, associated with the use of drugs, especially with the use of drugs other than cannabis. And I, and I think that contributes uh, to you know, the worldviews of uh, a lot of individuals. But I think stepping back, the idea of treating this as more of a health issue is not new. 
You know, for example, California in the early 2000s passed a ballot initiative uh, that would, uh, for those who were arrested uh, on a, uh, for drug possession, that would make it easier for them to get access to treatment as opposed to, uh, you, know, you know, being incarcerated or having some other, uh, you know, or having a criminal conviction and some other penalty. Can you talk about Portugal's experience with a, a similar move 20 years ago? They've got some time now under their belt. How has that society sort of moved forward with decriminalization and what changes uh, have, have researchers seen in drug use in Portugal? Once again, uh, what ended up happening in Portugal ended up being a lot more than just decriminalization. So in the late 90s, um, they were suffering from a severe outbreak of, uh, of HIV. And in response to that, uh, not only did they decriminalize the possession of all drugs, but they also uh, put a lot of money into uh, treatment as well as outreach and harm reduction services. And then what was unique about what Portugal did is then they also created these, uh, what they're called dissuasion uh, committees. And I forget the, the Portuguese uh, uh, the acronym, but essentially, so for those who were caught with small amounts of drugs, they then would go before this, uh, they would go, then go meet with this committee and, you know, it would, you know, and sometimes there'd be two to three people, maybe a medical official, someone from social services, and they would, um, you know, they would have a conversation. And then based on that, they would decide what to do. You know, a lot of these ended up being just for cannabis and the case essentially just got dropped unless the person really did need services. Uh, but for, for other individuals, like, you know, it may just lead to a fine or they would then make a referral to treatment if the person needed it. Now that said, if they made a referral to treatment and you didn't go, uh, they couldn't do anything about it. Mm. Uh, but you know, but stepping back, this passed in you know these reforms, you know, were implemented you know in two thousand one, and you know, and Portugal has had a number of different governments <laughs> since then, and this just is not really that controversial there. Mm -hmm. You know, it survived multiple changes in in, uh, in government, and. Um, yeah, and, and a lot of people around the world look to it, and uh, you know, and to the extent that uh, Oregon's creating these uh, the health referrals, um, this is somewhat similar. Yeah. Also, when we think about health more generally, of of people who use drugs, you know, it's also important to note that you know, it's these health assessments aren't just about referrals to treatment for substance use disorder. Um, you know, if these referrals help more people get access to the services they need, you know, for example, for dealing with infectious diseases or other mental health disorders, it could improve other health outcomes as well. Yeah. And so that's a bit different than uh, the status quo. Or dealing with stressors that previously had been dealt with with self-medication. Exactly. And, you know, and the other part of this uh, initiative is that, you know, essentially, you know, the Oregon Health Authority is going to create this new oversight and accountability council. And this council is going to have a lot of power. Uh, not only are they gonna oversee uh, you know, the implementation um, or the operations of these uh, addiction and recovery centers where the health assessments take place, uh, but they're also gonna be distributing funds you know, for substance use treatment, uh, you know, supportive housing, other services and it's going to be really interesting to, to see how this all plays out and where the money ends up going. And uh, so, yeah, so from a research perspective, we're going to pay really close attention to that. It leaves a lot of these uh, important details up to this council. So the council is going to have a lot of responsibility. When you say you're going to be keeping an eye on this or watching this in, in Oregon over the next months or years, what does that actually mean? I mean, what... What form does that take? How does someone in your position keep an eye on a state's implementation of a, of a kind of revolutionary new drug measure? Oh, this is a great question. <laughs> You're asking a researcher what they would do with unlimited funds. Uh, no. <laughs> well, you know, from a research perspective, um, the first thing I want to do 
is, you know, you know, as I said, pay close attention to how this gets implemented. Look, you know, look at the budgets. Um, look at what, you know, what's getting funding, how much is getting funding. And also when we talk about treatment, you know, it's not just about getting people into treatment. It's also making sure that they're getting high quality treatment. And so, um, so that's something we're going to want to pay attention to. But initially, I think a lot of this is going to be talking to people on the ground, mm -hmm. you know, spending time, you know, once this gets up and running, you know, talking to people who use drugs, talking to treatment providers, talking to law enforcement officials and kind of getting their sense of how have things changed? What are these unintended consequences? So I think so I think early on, especially as this is kind of rolling out, this qualitative research is going to be very interesting and very important for kind of really under because, it, you know, as we talked about before, this is so much more than just decriminalization. And so kind of really getting uh, to be able to paint a picture of what's really happening on the ground. Now, of course, we're also going to want we're also going to want to analyze data. So, you know, you know we'll be looking, you know, I, I would I'm hoping, uh, you know, to be looking at well, what happens in terms of, you know, treatment emissions. And once again, also, you know, emissions for high quality treatment. Um, paying close attention to what happens to arrests and, and not just uh, uh, overall arrests. We're also going to want to pay close attention to how, you know, how, how do things change for adults versus juveniles? Also, you know, look at this by race, look at this by ethnicity. Um, and then also, you know, getting data on hospital admissions, uh, overdoses. Um, so there's a lot, a lot of data that, you know, you can imagine this as kind of a stage two. Where so stage two, we begin collecting this information for Oregon, kind of looking at general trends. Now, you know, as a researcher, you can't just look at trends before and after and then say, okay, the policy, you know, it caused X, Y, and Z. You need a comparison group. And so I think one of the uh, potential candidates for being a comparison group would be Washington State. Mm -hmm. So we could look at these different outcomes, for example, treatment emissions, arrests, hospital emissions, overdoses. We could look at what happens before and after in Oregon and compare that to what happens before and after in Washington or potentially maybe some other states to then get a better assessment of, well, how much of this change is actually because of Measure 110 versus maybe some other explanations. It sounds fascinating. And this is a, a, a topic that we're going to be following in the years to come. And I, I hope that you'll come back and share some of your insight with us as you move forward. It would be an honor, Sean. I appreciate it. Bo Kilmer directs the RAND Drug Policy Research Center in Santa Monica. We reached him in Tahoe City. Dr. Kilmer, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, it was a pleasure. Take care. We're going to take a short break and come back to talk about peer counseling, which is a key part of the ballot measure. We are always interested in hearing from you. What do you appreciate about the podcast? What do you want to hear more of? Our email address is providence.org. In the weeks ahead, we'll be um, wrapping up the year of the nurse with a panel of nurses and what a year they've had, 2020. And we'll have a program focusing on the sandwich generation. And on Christmas Eve, we're planning to release a program for your holiday listening, reflecting on the incarnation and the Catholic tradition of healthcare as a ministry. What is it about caring for bodies that makes the work of healthcare sacred? Hope you'll stay with us. Back in a minute.
You're listening to the Hear Me Now podcast from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. I'm Sean Collins. Janie Gullickson is the executive director of the Mental Health and Addiction Association of Oregon and one of the chief petitioners on the ballot measure. And she joins us now from Portland. Janie, thanks for joining us. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. How is Measure 110 going to have an impact on the, the people you serve? Oh, that's a multifaceted question. It's going to have a, a huge impact. Um, first and foremost, it will decriminalize a health condition and change it to a health approach and treat it as a um, the physical uh, and you know disease that that it is, and then it will also um, provide funding to develop a continuum of services from harm reduction to housing, uh, expanding treatment services, and um, for the long game, those community-based recovery support services. And I want to talk with you about those services in just a moment, but I want to go back to the notion of treating it as a health issue rather than a law enforcement issue. Mm -hmm. We've heard lots of people make reference to that formula. Mm -hmm. What does that really mean for people in their lived experience? Well, I think for for far too long, it's been um, considered a moral failing a choice, a bad choice that people just make, a selfish choice. Um, it's stigmatized. It's self-stigmatized. Uh, there's so much shame um, associated with struggling with addiction. Um, you know, people who don't struggle with it, uh, you know, tend to tend to judge it very harshly, um, and and so. Um, there's plenty of, of self-shaming that uh, those of us who have struggled years with, with addiction um, put on ourselves, and it's, um, it's hard to reach out for help when it's also criminalized, and uh, there's the fear of being jailed for something that um, at some point in someone's life uh, can barely be helped you know, without outside help and support. Hmm. So your hope is that decriminalization will make it easier to talk about openly. Yes. And make it easier for people to seek services. Yes, absolutely. Much like when someone maybe has a heart attack or some other health condition where they know what to do. It's not a matter of what do I do. It's I... I call for medical help for a, you know an ambulance for I go to the hospital and I'm treated with with care and concern and someone tries to save my life you know mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm hoping uh, by shifting this status quo of criminalizing and, and stigmatizing of addiction that that yeah people will will want to reach out because they'll know there is a system a responsive system and a caring system that will will be there to serve them. So let's talk about the system that's put in place now, or which will be put in place, the regional centers. Um, what will be different about that system than what exists now? The, the centers themselves are not, um, as I think what first comes to mind, like a brick and mortar center that's going to need to be built. Uh, it'll expand funding to current uh, organizations and treatment centers, recovery centers, even potentially, you know, primary care or call centers where when someone either is ticketed or in a moment of um, wanting to reach out for help, needing to reach out for help, there will be this centralized way, this this common way of, of accessing help, whether it's a, a phone number or a, a physical location um, that uh, someone can can reach out to 24-7, and, and there will be uh, someone with lived experience on the other line doing, uh, you know, what what people with lived experience do in the recovery field, and that's uh, 
be that um, person who gets it on the other end of the line and who can um, talk with someone, hopefully uh, offer them comfort in the moment and connection to what it is they're looking for, whether that's treatment, healthcare, um, harm reduction services, uh, housing, you know, that'll be determined in that initial phone call and then those connections will be made right away. Janie, when I read through the literature about the measure, mm -hmm. that is precisely the part that stood out for me was this notion of peer counseling and that people who were going to be working with addicts were people who understood addiction and they understood it firsthand. Mm -hmm. That seems to have been really important for those of you who put this measure forward. Yes. Tell me why. Uh, from, I think, my vantage point, having done the work myself um, and also leading an organization uh, where that is the bulk of the services we provide, we've seen the magic in it. There's something to be said, no matter what the setting, if there's someone who can connect in an instant by saying, I've been where you are. I've been through this. Here's a little, just a snippet about me, not to make it about me, but just enough so that they know and then they can see they're not alone and that there may be caring doctors or even, you know, depending on whatever the situation is, there could be um, many, many caring people around them, but it's that instant connection of someone gets me from that real visceral place of having been there. Did you have that experience? No, unfortunately. Can you tell me how you were able to begin your recovery? Sure. I, uh, I started um, using methamphetamine at a pretty young age, um, mid-teens, and um, struggled with addiction to, you know, that substance that in the beginning I thought was the answer to all my woes, um, you know, uh, and um, it certainly didn't, you know, come without, even in the early, early years of my addiction, without um, personal consequences. And in those moments of personal consequences, wanting to reach out for help, asking um, my parents to help me reach out for help. Um, the folder that my mom has um, of, of trying to find resources, of trying to learn herself um, about my addiction. But even as, you know, middle-class suburban family, my parents couldn't find me help. And then as a young adult and on through the years, um, when I reached out for help myself, it, it could not be found. And eventually... Uh, I started just showing up at emergency departments um, and also getting arrested as my addiction and my mental health got out of control. And then I just became part of that cycle of um, incarceration in, in county jails and showing up at emergency departments and being hospitalized. And, um, and still, maybe I was told to go find treatment or uh, discharge paper said, you know, from the hospital emergency rooms and stopped doing meth. Um, but treatment wasn't available like, like people sort of, I think, thought it would be. Mm. Um, and, and eventually, um, you know, I started committing crimes that, um, as a result of my addiction that, uh, I'm just trying to survive that, that, uh, eventually landed me in prison. And that was 22 years into my addiction where I had not been able to raise my children. I had been homeless for years. My mental health was out of control and, you know, the years of trauma. And, and so um, the treatment that I was offered finally in prison, uh, I was, my life was changed because of treatment. <laughs> so right. it would have been great to have that so much earlier. Wow. It's, it's such a harrowing story, and um, I'm grateful for you sharing that with us. I'm also aware that that story has been repeated 
millions of times. Mm -hmm. The eyes of the nation are going to be on Oregon for the months and years to come. I hope that you'll let us check in with you, keep us in the loop so we can stay informed. That would that would be amazing. Yes, please. We would certainly wish you well. And uh, I'm really grateful for you taking the time to talk with us today. Yeah, thank you, Sean. Jenny Gullickson is the executive director of the Mental Health and Addiction Association of Oregon and one of the chief petitioners for Measure 110. joys of this job is the nearly daily reminder that there are good and wonderful people doing good and wonderful work throughout our communities. I'm deeply grateful to all our guests this hour. You're amazing people working for real change in our world. Thank you. Andrew Seaman practices addiction medicine in Portland and is on the faculty at Oregon Health and Science University. Mike Marshall is the founder of Oregon Recovers, building a movement of people in recovery with their families and friends across the state. Bo Kilmer directs the Drug Policy Research Center of the Rand Corporation. And Janie Gullickson is the executive director of the Mental Health and Addiction Association of Oregon, a peer-run agency dedicated to honoring the lived experience of people in recovery. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Our stories are edited by Allison Jakes and Mike Addis and produced by Melody Fawcett and Scott Acord. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. We have never-ending research help from a team of medical librarians, including Heather Martin, Amanda Schwartz, Seema Bakta, and Sarah Viscuso. There's really no way that we could produce this program without them. Do you like what you're hearing? Do us a solid and tell your friends. Share the word with your social network and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening to the Hear Me Now podcast. I'm Sean Collins. Be well. Roger Neal wrote our theme music. <laughs>